Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series looking at the life of Abraham with James Jordan. And here, Jim's going to be looking at the themes of the seed and the bride in Genesis chapters 24 and 25. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and as always, we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan concluding his look at the life of Abraham. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would bless us and help us to concentrate and help us to benefit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to our final study in the history of Abraham. Genesis 24 and the first half of Genesis chapter 25. And if you look at your notes, you'll see the structure of the passage before us. We began last time, the way this is arranged begins with the 12 sons of Nahor and ends with the 12 sons of Ishmael, both of which seem to be designed to show the large number of children that Abraham or Isaac could expect to have although it doesn't actually come until the third generation of the patriarch, and stands in something of a contrast to the single seed that is in view in these passages. And then sandwiched in there, we have the death and burial of Sarah and her insertion into the land, God's land, a permanent place being gathered to the fathers, and the death and burial of Abraham. The theme is the same. And in the center, we have a provision for succession, that the seed and the bride must pass down through history. Abraham and Sarah were not going to give birth to the ultimate redeemer of the world, but now Isaac and Rebekah come along, and perhaps they will. And, of course, this will go on down through history until finally the Virgin Mary conceives and gives birth to our Lord, who will finally bring in everlasting righteousness. And so today we come to section C, a Bride for the Seed, chapter 24. The best thing we can do is read this, these 67 verses, and then just summarize some of the themes that are here. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Despite all the tribulations that he's gone through for all these years, now we find that the Lord has blessed him in every way, spiritually, money, wives, children, everything. He has been given all the blessings that God has in this life. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he owned. This is one of those men that was adopted into the household, and this is the man who would inherit everything. If Isaac died, this man would inherit everything. And if Isaac doesn't get married, this man and his family would probably stand to inherit everything. So what Abraham asked this man to do is very significant to see his faith and his loyalty because he's going to be asked to go and make a provision for Isaac that will ensure that he himself doesn't inherit all of these things but remains in a subordinate status for all the generations. And yet he's willing to do it because he's a true servant. This is Eliezer of Damascus who stands to inherit if Isaac were not to inherit. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. 
exactly what that means we don't know, although if you imagine it, you can get a picture of a certain amount of risk. Abraham is basically saying, I'm putting my whole life and my whole future at risk and entrusting it to you, just as I trust you to place your hand under my thigh in this position here and yet not attack me, so I'm going to give you charge of something that's very important to me, and I'll trust that you'll carry it out. He says, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your seed I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. This is the fourth time we've seen reference to the angel. And before it was twice in connection with Ishmael, and then last time it was in connection with the sacrifice of Isaac outside when Isaac was taken away from their home. And the angel particularly seems to be the one who gives protection when one is outside the land. When you go outside the land and you're away from the Lord and away from the sanctuary, then the angels take care of you. Jesus in the wilderness, it says, was ministered to by angels. And that seems to be the idea here. You're going out, you're going away from me and from the sanctuary and where God has put his name, but the angel will go with you and take care of the situation. Verse 8, If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from my oath, only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning the matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand, and he arose and went to Aram Nephariam to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the fountains of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it come to pass that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to my master. And it came to pass, before he had finished speaking, that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had known her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold. What kind of ring is this, an earring or a nose ring? It would be a nose ring, wouldn't it? And said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. 
Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. And as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. This is the Laban that shows up later on, too. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And it came about that when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come, blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet. Remember, you've got to wash your feet in the Old Testament because the ground is cursed and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. By the way, this is the principle of fasting in the Bible. Fasting is not some discipline to make yourself strong. The idea of fasting is you don't eat until you finish your business. If there's some terribly important business that we have with God, then we won't eat until we've got it done. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. And the Lord has greatly blessed my master, so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age. That's important because three generations have gone by in the household of Nahor, whereas only two generations have gone by in Abraham's household. And he has given him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Suppose the woman doesn't follow me. And he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you shall be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now thou wilt make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring. And may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, Please let me drink a little water from your jar, let her say to me, You drink, and I will draw for your camels also. And let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. And then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom milk bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know, that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel, brother and the father, answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. And the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother 
and to her mother. Why not to her father? Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the girl stay with us a few days, perhaps ten. Afterwards she may go. And he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister, Rebekah, and her nurse with Abraham's servant and the men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahairoi. Beer Lahairoi, you may remember, is where God met Hagar and Ishmael. The first time that they were driven out, it means the well of the one who sees me. Hagar said, God has seen me, judged me, and yet I live. How can that be? So Isaac is living now at this place, for he was living in the Negev, in the desert, or in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. And then she took her veil and covered herself. It's interesting. It means that she didn't normally wear a veil. In the Near East today, the Islamic people, Muslims, women wear veils all the time. But that's not the custom in the ancient world. She puts the veil on for symbolic reasons. Same way we do today. Girls don't wear veils all the time. Then they have a wedding ceremony and they put a veil on. So the husband can remove the veil. The veil symbolizes a barrier, or is a barrier, between the bride and the groom. And when it's removed, then it's possible, once the veil has been removed, for the two to become one flesh. And so that's what removing the veil means. And that's what it means here. She puts it on, and Isaac will take it off. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, and then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took her back, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There are four themes that I think it would be good for us to notice here that run through the chapter and give us a good picture of what's going on. The first theme is the well of water theme. There's a tremendous amount in the early verses about the well. And we might think, well, it just happens that when they draw near a city, they need to get water and all that. But it just keeps coming up about the girls at the spring with the jar of water on her head or on her shoulder. And she gives water to the man and waters his camels and all that. Well, that ought to remind us of the Garden of Eden. And the reason that that's important is that in the Garden of Eden, part of what Adam was supposed to guard in guarding the garden was he was supposed to guard Eve, who was in the garden and who is the mother of all living. And there's a parallel in the Bible between having children that go out into the world and springs of water where water flows out into the world. That's a parallel idea. It shows up in Proverbs. I'll read you one passage from Proverbs, chapter 5, 15 to 18. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And he goes on from there 
the idea is of happy marital relations and of children coming forth to go to the four corners of the world. Now this shows up again in the Bible more than once. In Genesis chapter 29, when Jacob goes to Laban, where does he meet Rachel? Well, he meets her at a well, watering the flocks. That's where he encounters her. Similarly, when Moses in Exodus chapter 2 gets to the land of Jethro, the land of Midian, what happens? Well, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water, fill the troughs for their water's flock. Shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stands up and delivers them, and they get their water. It's picked up in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman at a well, asks her for water. She gives him some, and he starts asking her about her husband. So the idea of the springs of water is a very general, vague type of a picture, but it seems to be a picture of being back in the garden, of having a happy marital relationship, and of having children, of having influence. One other verse we can call attention to that's familiar to you is John chapter 7, verse 38. John 7, verse 38, where Jesus says that those who have the Spirit out of their inmost parts will flow rivers of living water. So if we have the Holy Spirit, then we have good influences on the culture around about us, rivers of living water flowing out. And I think that the association here with the springs of water is probably one of children and fertility. The whole idea here, after all, was to find a wife who can have children for Isaac and can continue on the seed line down through history. And so that much, at least, is communicated here with the water and the wells of water, that she is a girl who is industrious, we see that, and generous, and also associated with children and water flowing out. The second thing that we need to notice that attention is called to here is that of virginity. We're told in verse 16, the girl was very beautiful, of course. The bride is always beautiful in the Bible. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being ugly. But in symbolic terms, God's bride is always pictured as beautiful. And so the women who marry the seed are pictured as beautiful in the Bible. It says that she's a virgin and no man had had relations with her. The word translated virgin just means young woman, but then it goes on to explain that she had never known a man. Why tell us all this? The fact is, in that culture, when you grow up in your mother's tent and you're surrounded by servants, you never had any opportunity to play around. There wasn't any question about the status of girls back in that culture and at that time, growing up in this environment. We're told it for theological reasons, and that is that the bride of the seed has to be a virgin. And if you're taking notes, take down Leviticus 21, 13 to 15. Leviticus 21, 13 to 15, talking about the high priest. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his seed among his people. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with marrying a widow. There's nothing morally wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with marrying a divorced woman, assuming the divorce was legitimate. And Rahab the harlot repented, and there was nothing wrong with her getting married, which she did, and she became the grandmother of David. Nothing wrong with it. But for symbolic reasons, the high priest who represents Jesus Christ 
is to marry a woman in her virginity, which means the church must be a virgin. We must be spiritually virgins in order to be an appropriate bride for Jesus Christ, uncorrupted by Satan. Now, Paul comments on this in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, and indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. So the church must be spiritually virginal before Christ. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So he doesn't want you to commit spiritual harlotry by becoming involved with Satan. And he says that's like what happened to Eve. Eve became involved with Satan, and then she committed spiritual harlotry. And so she was corrupted. Well, that mustn't happen to you. And that's what's being pictured here. We're supposed to be spiritually pure as the bride of Christ. And as a sign of that, Rebecca is a virgin when she comes and marries Isaac. Now, the fact is we're not. We've all got original sin. You know, we're born into this life spiritually corrupt by Satan. But that sin is taken away by the sacrifice of Christ. And so the death of Jesus Christ, which pays for all of our sins, makes us appropriate brides for Christ once again. And we are restored to spiritual purity. Well, that's the picture here. The bride of the seed is to be spiritually pure. And as a sign of that, it's emphasized that she's physically pure as well. So that's the second theme. The first one is that we expect her to be fruitful because of the association with springs of water. Of course, Rebecca turns out to be just as barren as Sarah was, and God has to open her womb. And second of all, she has to be a virgin. That is, she has to be spiritually pure to be married to Isaac. The third theme is the theme of motherhood that's in this chapter. She's going to be a mother, and there's an emphasis on her mother. Verse 28, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. And in verse 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. To understand this, we need to get something of a picture of how households were structured back then. We said last time that these were big tents. They weren't Bedouin tents where people moved around from place to place all the time. But at the same time, there's only so big that you can make a tent. And in these large, wealthy households, the wife frequently had her own tent and her own servants. In fact, her own subordinate household, for reasons that we'll see in just a few minutes. She had her own independent money. And if we look at how mothers function in these early chapters of the Bible and later on as well, we see the importance of this theme because the mother protects the children from the devil. The mother protects the children. And Sarah has been the one to protect Isaac. But now Isaac is going to have children. Who's going to protect those children? Remember that when Ishmael was counterfeiting, it was Sarah who made the move to protect Isaac. Sarah was the one who protected the seed. That's the function of the mother, to protect the seed. And later on, Rebecca does the same thing. When Isaac takes it into his head to give all the blessings to Esau, who is it who takes the steps to see to it that that doesn't happen? 
Jacob doesn't. He doesn't know what to do. It's Rebecca who comes along and says, look, put this lamb skin on you and go in there and tell him you're Esau. She takes the steps to protect the seed. Think of another mother in the Bible who protects the seed. Deborah, who was identified in Judges 4 and 5 as a mother in Israel, and she protects the whole land of Israel against Sisera. And so the idea of the mother in the Bible is the one who will protect the seed, the children, from attack. And you have to have the mother. As Sarah is dead, there's no longer anyone to assume that role, and so Rebecca takes on that role. She is going to be fruitful. That's the well of water theme. She is pure and appropriate bride. That's the virginity theme. And she will protect the children and help protect the kingdom of God. It's a high calling. And that's what the church does. The church is the mother of believers, protects believers from satanic attack. Finally, there's the brother and sister theme in this chapter, which is in some ways the most interesting. And we've commented on it before, but let's look at it again here. Verse 29. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And that comes right after the fact that she told her mother's household about these things. It doesn't seem to be Rebecca's father, who is alive, Bethuel. He shows up here. He doesn't seem the one to extend the official family greeting. It's the, her brother who does. And her brother seems to do all the negotiating. In verse 53, the servant brought out articles of silver and gold and gave them to Rebecca, and he gave precious things to her brother, and to her mother. Emphasis there. Why not to her father? In verse 55, her brother and her mother said, let her stay with us a few days. Verse 59, thus they sent away their sister, Rebecca. They sent away their sister. It could have said they sent away their daughter because they reversed the whole household. But she's spoken of as a sister and not as a daughter. And they blessed Rebecca, verse 60, and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. Now what's going on here is an adoption. There's kind of a double ceremony going on here. Not only is she going to become the wife of Isaac, but even more importantly, she's going to become the sister of Isaac. Isaac adopts her or takes her to be his sister even more than he takes her to be his wife. The brother-sister relationship is actually more permanent and more foundational, you see, than the husband-wife relationship. You can have brother-sister relationships before you get married. You can have brother-sister relationships outside of marriage. And even in all eternity, after marriage is over and done with, we still have brother and sister relationships, or some type of fraternal relationships with one another. Adam and Eve were brother and sister before they were husband and wife. And in the Song of Solomon, You'll remember that over and over again it says, My sister, my bride. My sister, my bride. That's the refrain. Sister first, bride second. Spiritual sisterhood is foundational to true marriage, and that's why we're not allowed to marry outside the covenant. We have to marry other believers. We have to marry brothers and sisters. Now, what that means is, and what it meant in the ancient world, is that adopting another woman as your sister is an even closer relationship and marriage itself. And that's why when Abraham went down into Egypt, he told Pharaoh, Sarah is my sister. She actually was physically. But whether she had been or not, 
she was at least adopted as his sister, and to violate that relationship is even worse than to violate the husband-wife relationship. And later on, this explains why, in Genesis chapter 26, when Abimelech attacks Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac tells Abimelech that Rebekah is his sister. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Okay, well that's true, because he's adopted her as a sister here, and that makes it an even closer relationship, an even worse sin. The sister wife in the Bible had much more independent status than a wife who wasn't a sister. She had her own money, her own house, her own independent means, and was in a better position if her husband died to continue to take care of herself. So, the brother and sister theme is here. It's the genuine bonding of these two people here in Genesis 24. Do any of you have any questions over this passage? Because we'll have to move on pretty quick to another section. All right. Let's conclude then with chapter 25, verses 1 to 18. We actually have three sessions here to complete the story of Abraham. Now that we have a new wife, we have a new mother for the seed, the seed line will go on down through Isaac and Rebekah. Abraham is out of the picture, and Abraham takes another wife whose name is Keturah. And she bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, name should ring a bell, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. We have the queen of Sheba later on in the Bible. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, this is not Assyria, but someone else, Letushim and Leumim, these are the peoples that come from him. And the sons of Midian were Epha and Epher, and Hanok and Abida and Eldea, these were the sons of Keturah. All right, Keturah. Keturah is called a concubine in verse 6. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. What that word concubine means is that she was not a sister wife. She was not an endowed wife. She didn't have her own independent means, but she was dependent totally upon Abraham. A concubine is sort of a second-class wife who doesn't have her own independent means in the Bible. Who are these people? Well, we read in the New Testament that Abraham is the father of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision. And these sons of Keturah, as well as Ishmael, although he was circumcised as a youth, they don't seem to have practiced circumcision, even though they were believers. Circumcision was tied to the land. We go back to Genesis 17. We can see that, starting in verse 7. This is a circumcision passage. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And God said, As for you, keep my covenant, and this is my covenant that you shall keep, you shall be circumcised. Okay? The land of Canaan. Well, what happens when you're outside the land of Canaan? You don't practice circumcision. Have you ever wondered why the Jews didn't circumcise in the wilderness? They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and it says they didn't practice circumcision while they were there. Apparently they did practice it in the land of Goshen because God had told them they could live there temporarily. And once they got out in the wilderness into the land where actually these other people live, 
they didn't practice it. They all had to be circumcised when they crossed the Jordan at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Forty years' worth of circumcisions had to be performed. They didn't practice it. It wasn't just being the people, it was also being in the land. Similarly, remember when Moses was living in Midian, he didn't circumcise his children. It was when Moses went back into the land of Goshen to be with the people that God met him and said, you've got to circumcise your son. They didn't practice circumcision when they were outside the special lands. And so there's no reason to think these sons of Abraham practiced circumcision. In fact, there's every reason to think they didn't. Moses was living with Midian. Midian worshipped the true God. He led Moses and Aaron in worship in Exodus 18. And yet he didn't practice circumcision. So circumcision was not a sign of faith as such in the Old Testament. Rather, it was a sign of the special calling of the seed people in the land. And Abraham was the father both of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision. And these Gentile sons of Abraham, they have a history and a future. The Bible says that they make contributions to building up the kingdom of God. The queen of Sheba came and brought all kinds of gifts to Solomon to help build up the kingdom of God. And actually, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60 about all these people. You wonder what happens to these people later on in history. Well, God doesn't forget them. God calls them into the kingdom as well. Even though they're not called to be priests, yet they still have contribution to make. In Isaiah 60, starting in verse 4, we could actually start in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The passage is pretty familiar from the Messiah. Well, verse 4 says, Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons come from afar. Whose sons? Well, these are going to be Abraham's sons. Your daughters carried in the arms. You will see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you and the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. Well, those are names we just read. Midian was one of the sons of Abraham, and Ephah was the first son of Midian that was listed here. All those from Sheba will come. Okay, Sheba was the son of Jokshan, and Jokshan is the son of Abraham. They will bring gold and frankincense. Sound familiar? There's a fulfillment of that in the early chapters of Matthew. They will bring gold and frankincense, will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, the rams of Nebaioth. Nebaioth will minister to you. Well, who are Kedar and Nebaioth? Well, we haven't read their names yet, but they are also descendants of Abraham. If you look down in verse 12, these are the records of Ishmael, Abraham's son, uh, Genesis 25, verse 12. These are Ishmael's children, verse 13. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar. And then we have a bunch more names. Okay? So Kedar and Nebaioth are mentioned in Isaiah 60. They will go up with acceptance on my altar and will glorify my glorious house. What's the picture here? Well, the picture is that Abraham sends these other sons out, and they go out among the Gentiles and they get rich and they get the abundance of the sea and the wealth of the nations and multitudes of camels and golden frankincense, and then they bring them back. You see, Isaac, the son of Sarah, stays at home to minister in the sanctuary. All the other sons are sent downstream 
out to the land of Havilah, downstream from Eden. They go out to get all this stuff and bring it back. That's their purpose in history. You see, Isaac ministers in the sanctuary and takes care of worship. The other sons go out into the world and take care of the cultural mandate. Isaac wears the collar, does church work. All the other sons go out and do cultural mandate work. That's what is going on here. Both are equally important in the kingdom. You have to have them both. Somebody has to go out and make a bunch of money and bring a tithe in, you see. Otherwise, you can't do anything. And that's what the prophecy is here. It's all these other sons of Abraham. And they've gone out, and for centuries they've made money, and they will bring it back. And they will bring it into the kingdom of God. So that's who these people are. And sure, they weren't circumcised. They didn't need to be. They didn't wear the collar, so they weren't circumcised. They weren't special priests to minister in the sanctuary in the Old Testament. But they had this cultural mandate task that was equally important, and they went out to do it. Now, in verse 5, we read that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, that's Keturah and Hagar, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. Well, contradiction in the Bible. Whoever wrote this obviously couldn't think because he says Abraham gave it all to Isaac and then he says Abraham gave some of it to his other sons. This is the way liberals think, as if this guy couldn't know how to write. No, when it says Abraham gave all to Isaac, that means that Isaac inherited the central portion. He inherited the blessing. Okay? He inherited the blessing. And when Abraham died, it all passed to Isaac. But meanwhile, Abraham gave gifts. I'm sure they were very nice gifts because Abraham was very rich to his other sons. And he sent them away from Isaac eastward to the land of the east. All right? And that's ambiguous in the Bible. East means moving away from the sanctuary of God, doesn't it? They journeyed to the east. It says that Adam and Eve were kicked out to the east. And then it says that Cain moved further east into the land of wanderings. And it says that Nimrod and the people who built the Tower of Babel were moving to the east. So on the one hand, going out to the east is going away from God, but the doorway back in is located on which side? Was on the east side. So being positioned to the east is being positioned at the door. So which is it? Well, it's up to these people. If they remain faithful, then being out in the east can be a blessing. Because what are they called to do? They're called to go out into the world, make a bunch of money, and bring it back. Bring it back to the east gate. Bring it in. So it's a blessing to be stationed at the east. Or, if you don't take advantage of the blessing, then it can be a curse, being sent away. And it's up to them. It'll be up to these people. Actually, you remember that Moses lived with Jethro, the priest of Midian, and Jethro, the Midianite, was a believer. And he blessed Moses and the people of God. But then, later on, the Midianites attacked him in the book of Numbers. So there was two different groups of Midianites, apostate Midianites and faithful Midianites. And that's the ambiguity. It'll be up to each of these sons and each of their descendants to decide whether to remain faithful, but the opportunity is given to them to be in the east and be by the gate of the garden and bring their gifts and receive the blessing. Now, this also has the effect, of course, of separating the seed from the other sons and preserving the integrity of the witness that God has set up. 
There has to be something unique about the seed because there's something unique about Jesus Christ. We're not like him. Only Jesus could die for the sins of the world. Only Jesus' resurrection could give us eternal life. And he's unique. And that uniqueness has got to be preserved. So to preserve the uniqueness of the seed, Abraham's other sons are separated off. Well, now we come to the next to the last section here, the death of Abraham, verses 7 to 11. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived. 175 years. Came down into Canaan when he was 75. He's lived there 100 years. Two jubilees. And now it's time to go. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and was gathered to his people. In other words, the Bible was fully aware that there was a place after death where the righteous live, and that's where Abraham went to be with them. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. So Ishmael comes to help out with the burial, which to me is another indication that Ishmael is a converted man. Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Emphasis on the burial and into the land. It's the land of promise. It's the land that is a holding action until the kingdom would come. And it's a hope of the resurrection. This is the one piece of land that they actually owned for all those centuries. And Abraham is there, and the people would remember that and trust that God would give them all the rest of the land. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Berlahai Roy, the well of him who sees me. God had been blessing Isaac before, but the idea here is God had blessed Abraham in every way. He's a ripe old man. He died at a ripe old age. An old man satisfied with life. And now the blessing passes to Isaac. And God will bless Isaac just as he blessed Abraham. And that's what happens. Isaac goes through the same tribulations that Abraham went through. And then he winds up with the same blessings that Abraham had. And the only sad thing about Isaac is that he falls into sin and loses the blessing. He becomes blind morally and becomes blind physically. He chooses the wrong son and is frustrated. That didn't happen with Abraham. The passage closes with a list of the sons of Ishmael, and that's where we'll close. One final notice about 12 sons. These are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's maid bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Detur, Nephesh, and Kadima. Hmm. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Same language used for Abraham is used for Ishmael here. And they settled from Havilah to Shur. And that's a real bell ringer there. Havilah was the land that was downstream from Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And these people are said to dwell downstream from Eden in relationship to the people of God.
in the land of Havilah. Remember, there was gold there and bdellium and the onyx stone. And when Israel came out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness, they didn't have to wander there, but they went into the wilderness for a year to build the tabernacle. This is where they were. They were in Havilah. And they built the tabernacle. They had it full of gold. And there were onyx stones in the high priest's garment. And they ate manna, which manna was said to be the color of bdellium. And all that happened while they were out there in the land of Havilah, where Ishmael had settled. Then they were supposed to go on into the promised land. Well, this is where they lived. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. And then there's a phrase that every Bible translates differently. This one says, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. He fell over against all of his brothers. Some say he dwelt in the midst of his brethren. Who knows what it means? Apparently nobody has been able to settle down on what an exact translation is. And so there's really not much of any comment that I can make on it. Why is this passage inserted here? Well, it rounds out the section that we began with, the twelve sons of Nahor showing multiplication, and here the twelve sons of Ishmael showing multiplication and blessing. This is what God is doing for the relatives of Abraham, and will God do it for the seed as well? Well, we know that he will eventually. Jacob has twelve sons. But in order to emphasize the uniqueness of the seed, initially there's just one each time. One faithful son who typifies Jesus Christ, the one who will die for the many. Well, that concludes our study of Abraham. That also concludes our time this morning. So let's stand and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the covenant history that you've given to us and that you have ushered us into the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our King, and how he takes care of us and protects us. And we thank you for the opportunity of being part of your church and being part of your people as we move through history. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.